Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line by embracing behavioral economics. And now, here are your hosts, world-renowned thought leader on customer experience, Colin Shaw, and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. If you fly 30 times a year, you're going, oh, God, I've got to walk past 17 Toblerone concessions just to get to the plane. <laughs> and, oh, God, it's another branch of paper chase, or Oliver Beffing bonus. You know, you're not punching the air with excitement. You can't legislate for hand-washing. The only economic incentive you could devise would be to make soap free and to deliver it to everybody, which... Uh, I don't think it's strictly necessary. The use of plastic bags in the UK, which has gone down incredibly over the last few years. A beautiful example there. I don't think if they put it up from 5p to 10p, it'll make that big a difference. Ryan, I'm so pleased to let you know today that we have an extremely special guest on the show today. You may recall that my son Ben works in advertising, and when I told him that we had Rory Sutherland coming on the show today, he said he's a legend. And for my son to say that, he must be. And we've never had a legend on the show before. I'm sure you've had many. <laughs> Elvis keeps turning us down for some reason. Yes, I know. No, he's, he's like that, isn't he? The interesting thing is that if you have a certain degree of TED Talk success, it's a very strange kind of micro-fame where you're very famous among a very small number of people. So I'll occasionally be walking through Copenhagen Airport, or when you could walk through airports, I would. Three people would come up to me and go, uh, <laughs> you Rory Sutherland. And then to everybody else, you're just that fat guy wandering around. So it's very, very <laughs> Nobody's given you free coffee, but among the, the few that know you, you're well appreciated. I live in hope. For those of you that don't know Rory and haven't walked up to him and said hello, Rory is the vice chairman of uh, Ogilvy in the UK, and he has on his bio he talks about the fact that he's got it's a vaguely attractive job title, particularly of interest to this podcast. Rory, along with Ryan and I, are passionate about behavioural economics, behavioural science, and how that, in my view and Ryan's view, underestimated in in organisations. And as Rory says, he's done a number of TED Talks. He writes for The Spectator, Market Leader, Impact, and Wired. And he's written a couple of books. And we're going to be talking about one of those today, which is uh, Alchemy, the surprising power of ideas which don't make sense, which if you haven't read it, you need to go and buy it because it's really, really, really good. So welcome again, Rory. The first thing I loved about your book, Rory, was that you talked about the 10 rules and then gave 11. <laughs> which which I thought was outstanding. It was, a, it was a very small nod to Spinal Tap as well. Yes. Well, I just think that it just said to me, you have to think outside the square and don't be, as I think you've said, don't be constrained by things, basically. We're not going to get a chance to go through all 11 on the podcast. Well, we need to give people a reason to still read the book. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. But I wanted to pick out three or four that I thought was going to be particularly interesting to the audience. And Rory, feel free to jump in with any of the others as you see fit. 
But I guess the first one that struck me that I thought would be interesting to the audience was number three, which is it doesn't pay to be logical if everybody else is being logical. So can you talk a bit about that for us? Uh, It's a very simple thing, which is that if you play by the same rules as everybody else, and if you become obsessed with comparison, you will find yourself using exactly the same metrics as your competitors. And if you're optimizing the same metrics as your competitors are optimizing, you become more and more alike. And arguably, you become more and more commoditized. Those of you who've read Blue Ocean Strategy, which I have to confess I haven't read yet, and I've I've been meaning to read it for ages. But the point of differentiation and distinctiveness is to some extent there's a very, very good formula for business success. It's not infallible. But if you develop better metrics than your competitors, if you abandon that need for comparison, it's a very, very good way to find comparative advantage. I would argue, for example, that what made Apple and I'm not, by the way, a complete Apple fanboy. I'm an Android user. So this isn't one of those tedious things of marketing people talking about the brands they themselves happen to love. But what made Apple different was that everybody else in tech was asking what a phone could do. In other words, they were looking at measures like battery life, processor power, available RAM, and so forth. And Apple asked a subtly different question, which was, let's not optimize that because everybody else is optimizing that. Let's ask a different question, which is, how does the phone make you feel while you're doing it? The first considerations are objective. They're about SI units and things that are numerically measurable. The second is subjective. And I'd argue that one of the ways of getting closer to customers as a marketer is simply to develop subjective, not objective metrics against which you judge yourself. That involves a degree of loss of certainty. It involves a degree of ambiguity. It may make you at risk of being accused of being less scientific because you're talking about touchy-feely stuff rather than objective measures. But you've done two things. One, you've escaped the dangerous trap that assumes that improvements in objective reality correlate to changes in human perception and behavior, and that there's a linear relationship between the two, which is a very dangerous assumption. Yes, people hate waiting for 50 seconds on a phone call to be answered. Actually, the difference between 10 seconds and one second in terms of irritation is more or less negligible. That's the first thing. If you try and improve things objectively, first of all, you'll get to the point where actually nobody cares, and you'll end up trying to optimize things beyond a point where it's worthwhile. The second thing, which I think is really worth noting, is that when you start looking at things subjectively, there's a trade-off you make, which is your degree of certainty about the rightness of your solution diminishes. In other words, your ability to win arguments goes down because you can't say, we put these numbers into the model, it told us 7.3, so that's what we're going to do. Very, very good way to get board level approval is to have an apparently objective model with a single right answer. That's what you lose. What you gain is that the size of your potential solution space increases immensely. Interestingly, I am a big Apple fan, and one of the good things that I always talk about on this podcast is Apple as an example. But I guess my question, Rory, is around why do organizations not see this? Just focusing on that sort of rational side of things, 
I'd say I'm immensely privileged here, and this is a very weird debt of gratitude I owe to the advertising industry and to marketing in general, which is when you think about it, I mean, advertising looked at in one way is a slightly silly and peripheral business, okay? One thing it gives you, which it only shares, I think, with high-end mathematics, bizarrely. The only other place I repeatedly see this is among first-rate mathematicians, which is it's a field which rewards you for looking at the same thing in eight different ways. Most fields of business activity, there's a very, very strong inducement for you to think like everybody else. Your career will go better. Your life will be easier if you use the same metrics, the same viewpoint, the same frame as everybody else. In advertising, the solution to solving problems, and by doing this for 30 years, you get better at it. There's a wonderful example when two people from, I think it was DDB, appeared on Top Gear, and Jeremy Clarkson went to make an ad. And he said, so Peugeot's now better because you can get a diesel. And the guy from DDB said, the creative guy said, no, no, no. The way to look at this is that diesel is now better because you can put it in a Peugeot. (laughs) (laughs) To actuaries or finance people watching this, that's an incredibly irritating kind of way to view the world. Can we all agree on this, please? What's important is X and let's look at it like this. But in problem solving, it's an extraordinarily valuable way to be able to look at the world. This is why one of the other rules in the book, without spoiling your your list, is sometimes the opposite of a good idea can be another good idea. In most fields of activity, you have an optimal solution, and then you have suboptimal solutions, which are worse. In advertising, it can be a good idea to drop the price. It can be a good idea to put the price up, if you have that kind of ad land mentality. A classic example would be an economist would say this product isn't selling because the price is too high. A marketing thinker would say this thing isn't selling. Maybe it's because the price is wrong. Now, an economist would assume there was no such thing as a price that was too low. A marketer would have to say, no, 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 that's not necessarily true. Right. And therefore, if you start to extend that and one of your other rules was around that the problem of of logic is that it kills off magic. I guess where I'm coming from is this is sort of organizations seem to be obsessed by the rational. I think, by the way, you pay the price twice. Because first of all, you don't go looking for magical solutions in the first place. And the second thing is that if magical solutions present themselves to you, you don't believe them or you think they're cheating. So not only do you not look for magic, but you discount it when it appears. So even when it's handed to you on a plate, your natural reaction is to disbelieve. So can you give us an example of a magical solution? There's one which is hypothetical because I don't know if it would work. Let's try this. Well, I think I can demonstrate that it works, in fact. Let's talk about something like train overcrowding. The definition of an engineer of an overcrowded train is a train which has people standing on it. And therefore, if you want to reduce train overcrowding, you could use economic incentives to spread the time in which people travel. And I'm, by the way, I'm not a, by no means dismissive of that as a solution. You know, one of the interesting things that might emerge from the coronavirus is that commuting times might become fuzzier because now everybody knows how to Zoom. If you've got a 7 a.m. Zoom call because you're talking to someone in Asia, well, what you're going to do is you're not going to go into the office to do that. That would mean getting up at five in the morning. You're going to do the Zoom call from home. Maybe you'll do a bit of email and travel in at 10 o'clock. 
Those sort of things can change. And, and by the way, that's a perfectly good solution. It, it is a behavioral solution, by the way. You can't mandate which train people travel on. It still requires a degree of persuasion. You could use the price mechanism. You could use a rewards program. You could just use information. Just say on the website, this is the least crowded train between 9 and 11, and people will go on it because it's less crowded. But there are other ways to look at the problem. And this is where I come down to this point where advanced mathematics and the ad industry have a very surprising sort of a relation, which is to say that your model assumes that there's no difference between 100 people who have to stand 10% of the time and 10 people who have to stand 100% of the time. Now, I would argue that your model is wrong because people who have to stand on a commute 10% of the time don't really mind that much. When I used the tube in London back in the old days, you know, about 10% of the time, I used it at funny times of the day. Quite often, 10% of the time, I'd have to stand. I just filed that in the shit that happens tray. You know, it's not something that causes seething resentment or a, or a sense of anger, okay? On the other hand, if I buy a season ticket from Seven Oaks to London, an annual season ticket, and I never get a seat, I not unreasonably feel a bit cheated. Yeah. Now, my question is this. What happens if you solve overcrowding psychologically rather than numerically? And all you do is you run two trains from Tunbridge to London in each direction at peak hours every day, which are exclusively for people with annual season tickets. So the people who travel the most get preferential treatment. Now, you're going to go, well, that's weird. How on earth are you doing this? Now, my argument is that, one, all the people who routinely get angry with the train company would now be, to a significant extent, assuaged in their anger. How do I know this works? I don't. Specifically, I don't. On the other hand, let's do something we call lateral category analysis, where we look at related industries. Let's imagine that you flew to Frankfurt in economy 20 times a year. By the time you'd flown 12 times, although you'd still be in an economy seat most of the time, you would have been elevated to the British Airways silver tier and eventually to the BA gold tier. Now, suddenly, although you're still in an economy seat, your check-in experience, your luggage drop-off experience, your lounge experience, your boarding experience, and the little tag that says priority on your luggage, okay, all of those are now attributes of a first-class passenger or a business-class passenger in the case of Frankfurt. If you went to a restaurant every week, you'd expect a better seat and a better table. You wouldn't expect to be seated by the bogs. And so what's obvious is that other travel companies have stumbled on this, that actually your degree of irritation with things is proportionate to how often you have to do Someone who flies once a year, right? They're not that bothered they don't get a lounge, are they? Because let's face it, if you only fly once a year, Heathrow Terminal 5 is a novelty in itself, right? If you fly 30 times a year, you're going, oh, God, I've got to walk past 17 Toblerone concessions just to get to the plane. <laughs> And, oh, God, it's another branch of paper chase, or Oliver Beffing bonus, you know. You're not punching the air with excitement. Let Beyond Philosophy help you discover what your customers really want, not what they say they want, by uncovering the hidden drivers of value in your customer experience to create real ROI. Contact Beyond Philosophy by going to beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash contact. Well, really talking my language now. I don't know. <laughs>
Yeah, we're we're angling to get Toblerone as a sponsor. So if you could not besmirch them, that'd be great. So psychology changes with frequency. Airlines have spotted it. Restaurants have spotted it. And so that's what I'm saying is that by making the solution less mathematical, you make it fuzzier. Okay. In some ways, it makes the problem more difficult because you don't have a clear thing you're trying to optimize. On the other hand, your potential solution space becomes huge. A second solution we've looked at is that if you make standing a bit nicer and sitting down a bit less pleasant, you would get a significant number of people who wouldn't see overcrowding as a problem because they'd choose to stand. So at the moment, the person who gets the seat gets everything. They get a seat, they get a table, they get a PowerPoint, they get a view out of the window, they can use a laptop, they can put their coffee on the table, they can read a book. The person who stands gets nothing. In fact, they lose the use of one hand because they've got to hold on to a post to stop themselves falling over. And so understandably, there's a huge resentment towards not getting a seat. Now, you could design trains so that there was a compensatory mechanism. The seats are in the middle of the train. You don't get a table. You do get a seat. Maybe you get a plug and you get a cup holder. On the other hand, if you're happy to stand, you lean against a nice little sort of shelf that goes along the window. You look out of the window, use your laptop. You have a bit of a bum rest and two USB ports. I wouldn't be surprised if younger people and people who wanted to get on with some work under those circumstances wouldn't prefer to stand than to sit. And now a psychological factor comes in, which is called adaptive preference formation, first spotted arguably by Aesop in the, the Fox and the Grapes, which is people who are forced to stand but can tell themselves a story about why they'd prefer to stand anyway, are now perfectly happy because they've actually reformed their preferences in the light of constraints. And the brain does quite a lot of this. We, we minimize regret where we possibly can. What this is, is it's the synthesis of economic value by psychological means. Right. Maybe let's move on to a couple more of these. Solving problems using rationality, like playing with only one golf club. Can you explain what you mean by that? What tends to happen in government, uh, what tends to happen in business, is the group of people who are first given a problem to solve or an opportunity to exploit tend to have a very similar mindset and it tends to be the financial engineering newtonian kind of reductionist mindset and they love a nice clear numerical target yeah actually what you're doing by as soon as a problem is defined in economic terms economists have a monopoly on its solution as soon as a problem is defined in legal terms it's given to lawyers. And what you're doing is you're restricting at the very beginning, the potential number of tools that can be deployed in the obtaining the solution. One of the things that strikes me as wrong is that the one club, let's say it's a legal or economic club. And by the way, I'm not disputing the fact for a second, that legal, economic, and persuasive technologies can all be deployed simultaneously right? So I'm not suggesting they're mutually exclusive. If you look at something like drink driving, the reduction in drink driving, some part of it has undoubtedly been achieved by social stigma. But I don't think it would have been achieved nearly as fast or as consistently had there not been legal sanction for driving over the limit. So I'm not one of those people who's a fanatical libertarian obsessive who thinks you can obtain everything through persuasion. However, Let's take the coronavirus, okay? The two behaviours that seem to be essential, or the only two that people have so far come up with, is social distancing 
or better described as physical distancing, because there's no reason to be antisocial. It's merely a physical thing. And hand washing. You can't legislate for hand washing. The only economic incentive you could devise would be to make soap free and to deliver it to everybody, which uh, I, I don't think is strictly necessary. Uh, it's impossible to know whether people are washing their hands. So persuasion is necessary to obtain that behavior. In the case of social distancing, a degree of voluntariness is probably essential because it will be impossible for the police to prevent people having secret parties. In a sense, one of my arguments is that if you want behaviours to change. The typical approach is we deploy law first, economic second, and persuasion third. And I'd say at the very least, you should deploy them in parallel. Arguably, you should try persuasion before you resort to the other two. There's an advantage to persuasion, which is often forgotten as well, which is it's very difficult when you write legislation and it's very difficult when you devise economic incentives not to penalise people unjustly. So let's take an example. I use this example a lot, partly because it seems to me an important behavior change you could achieve, and yet I can't get anybody to show any interest in it, which is simply encouraging people to reduce carbon emissions in the UK, to put on washing machines, dishwashers, and tumble dryers late in the evening or at night rather than in the middle of the day. Because the amount of incremental carbon generated by a 1 a.m. tumble dry is markedly lower than the likely carbon emitted by a 6pm or 3 in the afternoon use of your tumble dryer. I mean, the UK is kind of part nuclear, part wind powered at night, very heavily so. Sure. Let's imagine you made it illegal to put your tumble dryer on until midnight, okay? Or you've charged people a huge amount of money for using electrical appliances during the day and made it very cheap at night. Both of those things would work right? Both of those things have unfeenly penalized certain groups of people. So if you work nights, for example, you work on a night shift, you don't want those people leaving their house with a tumble dryer on because it might catch fire. Or if you have a washing machine, which is above your neighbor's bedroom, right? Because you live in a block of flats, they don't want your damn thing hitting the spin cycle at 2am because it's going to wake them up. Now, the beautiful thing about persuasion is that if you've got a good enough reason, you're free to ignore it. That isn't true about legislation, and it isn't true about economics. Generally, there are what you might call there is collateral damage when you legislate or when you design economic or tax programs. There's far less collateral damage, and therefore you can afford to be more ambitious when designing programs involving persuasion. And we did a podcast on this a little while ago about the use of plastic bags in the UK, which is, as you're more than aware, has gone down incredibly over the last few years. A beautiful example there, by the way, I don't think if they put it up from 5p to 10p, it'll make that big a difference. No, I agree. I think the principal thing it obtained was actually a behavioural change. Although the economic justification is that the 5p cost... Yeah, I'm not bragging here, but I don't really budget at the level of five Ps. <laughs> okay. and, and lots of people like me who now use far fewer polythene plastic bags aren't really affected by a 5p change in price. Would you be more reluctant to go to Starbucks in the morning if they put the price of your flat white up by 5p? I have to confess, I wouldn't notice because I don't know what a flat white costs at Starbucks. Yeah. And, and for our American audience, we're talking about a dime. A dime, exactly. A lot of people don't, but their behavior nonetheless changed, even though they didn't care. Why? Because it changed the default. 
Previously, as a retailer, if you didn't offer someone a bag by default, it was seen as discourteous. By dint of having a charge for a bag, you required the cashier to ask, do you want a bag? It's 5p, which therefore made it much easier to say no. It fundamentally changed the choice architecture and the choice framing in terms of having a bag. And typically I respond, if I'm already carrying a bag, I go, no, I don't need a bag because I've got one here. I'm not doing that to save 5p. I'm doing it because I was asked. In the past, I never was. What was I supposed to do? If Boots handed me my paracetamol in a polythene bag and I was already carrying a large tote bag, I wasn't going to take them out of the bag and throw the bag back in the cashier's face, was I? That would have been a deeply weird thing to do, okay? (laughs) So it principally was what you might call a marriage of economics and behavioural science. Yeah, I see that. It's quite amusing because when I go shopping in the States, I ask them not to put things in a bag and they look at me as if I'm mad, but then they realise I'm British. Also, of course, in the States, it's a brown paper bag, isn't it, which you bizarrely carry around because all Americans shop in... Do you know, I always assumed in the US that was a convention in cinema and soap operas because you didn't want to show branding. I didn't realise that the paper bags in reality were really plain, but they are, aren't they? They are, although I have to say most places use plastic now. You can ask for paper, and when I need it, I ask for paper. But they do look at you as if you're mad. As I've said before, please go out and get Rory's book, Alchemy, The Surprising Power of Ideas That Don't Make Sense. Watch out for his TED Talks. And Rory, if people want to get hold of you, how is it best they do that? The best first point, and I'm very happy to follow you back if you want to engage in longer chat, uh, Twitter at, at Rory Sutherland, all one word. So uh, no full stops, no dashes, just at Rory Sutherland. Perfect. Okay, Roy, great having you, and thanks very much for everyone listening, and talk to you all next week. It's a great pleasure. Thank you very much indeed. Stay safe, stay well, and stay indoors. You can hear that Rory's got so much good information that we decided to split this podcast into two because we carried on talking for far longer than we normally do. So we're going to break the podcast here, but please make sure that you come back for part two. Part two is going to include things like how small things can have a massive effect, how people don't believe in magic anymore and why magic is so important, how to deploy a different way of thinking. And we're also going to be discussing what's happening with the new normal. So as the pandemic starts to decline, how do we get back to business and what's that new normal going to look like? So please make sure you dial in for part two of this great interview with Rory Sutherland. Remember to get the podcast summary, which includes the key takeaways and the recommended actions from this podcast, and in fact, all of our podcasts, from beyondphilosophy.com backslash podcast summary. That's beyondphilosophy.com backslash podcast summary. You're going to be able to share that with the team and just keep a record of the key actions and takeaways from this session. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast 
find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast. And we'll talk with you next time on The Intuitive Customer.